I think both John and Bev have mentioned the polarization, and I think that's probably the context in which all of these discussions are, are happening. And I've always believed that you can have two ideas that are entirely inconsistent with each other, and ultimately those two ideas cannot coexist. And the classic example in American history is Declaration of Independence and slavery, okay? Those two things can't coexist. They can for a short time, but at some point, one's going to win over the other. And in our case, we fought about it. And fortunately, the good one won out. And I think, so in the 1840s, the 30s, 40s, 50s, we did not have shared values. There were values that were diametrically opposed to each other and ultimately, because these things can't coexist. I think there are similarities today. I forget whether it was John or Beth who said that we're not at a civil war. I'd call us at a cold war. I think we're diverging in our values, and these are closely held values, things that we hold dear on both sides. And to a certain extent, some of these are not consistent with each other, and long-term, they won't coexist with each other. One of them is going to win over the other. I don't think this venue is the proper place to start talking about this, but I think suffice to say, we're having this fight and as a nation, and because we don't feel like we can really have a good fight at the federal level, you mentioned this, Nancy, and you can't have a good fight at the federal level. The local citizens is, where can I have this fight? They're gravitating to the local level to have the fight because they can't feel like if, if it's a state issue or national issue and I'm a citizen, I feel passionate about it. How do I go to the state or the federal government to express my passion? You can't. And, or at least most people don't feel like they can. And so what they do is they go to local level. So I understand why this is happening. Again, I keep coming back to it's a good idea. Welcome to this episode of PCC Local Time. I am Nancy Hess, creator of this podcast, founder of the Pioneering Change Community, and an HR org development consultant from way back. Today, I am excited to welcome three return guests, Dr. Bev Siegler, Professor Emerita from Penn State, Dr. John Kincaid, Professor at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania, and Matt Canlin from Upper Moreland Township in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. In this episode, we talk about the rising occurrence of national issues entering into local politics and the resulting polarization that occurs. This episode presents views that balance, on the one hand, the role of our federal constitution in supporting activism on national issues at the local level, and on the other, the business of local government and the role of the city manager. In short, this episode is a quick study on how federalism impacts local government. As you will discern, this conversation is one that deserves many more. But what is presented here is a foundation for understanding and perfectly crafted and presented by my three esteemed guests. If you would like more content on this issue, including an article Matt wrote that spurred this conversation, or want to learn more about the PCC community, sign up for the Friday newsletter from the show notes. I open this episode by asking Matt to talk about why this topic is important to him personally, how his perspective has evolved, and how he understands the business of government. So off we go. Thank you, Nancy and John and Bev. Bev, it's good to see you again. John, it's nice to meet you. 
Bev and I served on, I even forget what the name of that committee that we were on. Was the South Central Assembly. An That's it. Organization. Yeah. Eight counties. After I wrote this draft article, a number of people did ask me what motivated you to write this article. And I don't think there was any single event or single thing that motivated me. I started in local government back in 1995 as the town manager for Sykesville, Maryland, which is a small town in Carroll County. And when I arrived in, in, in Sykesville, I had just graduated NC State. So I was only 28 years old. And so I was green. Everything was new to me. And one of the first things I learned in Sykesville was that we were a nuclear free zone. And a lot of people joked about it because it didn't really mean anything. And I asked the question, I said, what does that mean? And they said, it doesn't mean anything, but what the, I think, I can't remember what, it wasn't an ordinance. I think it was a proclamation or a resolution that said, we were not going to allow nuclear material to travel through our incorporated limits. And I said, how are we going to do that? And they said, we don't know. So it was all just this performative kind of thing. So that was my introduction to this topic, but I didn't give much thought to it at the time. Number of years goes by and the Sanctuary Cities for Immigration movement starts picking up. And again, I don't give much thought to that either because it seems to be a relative fringe kind of movement. But as time goes by, you start seeing more and more of these efforts at the local level to address national issues. And within the last four or five years, I've really seen it explode. Now, I haven't done any sort of scholarly scientific survey of how many of these events have been occurring over time, but anecdotally and speaking to my colleagues, it seems to be an increase. And really what struck me and really it was ultimately the motivator was that the ICMA, International City County Management Association, sends out what they call smart briefs and news briefs. I think it's weekly, but they send out a, a list of a whole bunch of articles from around the country of, of issues related to local government. And I increasingly saw articles, and I don't think ICMA even meant to do this, but I in increasingly saw articles on this very topic. So there would be one article on one community that was going to legalize marijuana. There was another one that was going to legalize abortion or illegalize abortion. Or, and it really ran the gamut. And what was different from the past that tended to be at least the, the more visible effort seemed to be more on the left. It seemed to be a fringe effort of the left. But what I was beginning to see over the last four or five years was there was occurring on the right too. So this was equal opportunity activism at the local level. And what occurred to me is, and let me back up. I went to NC State, Bev's own school, for my MPA. And one of the things that I remember the professors talking about was one of the important roles of a city manager was to help promote and cultivate good government, that we were supposed to be the examples and the promoters and the supporters of good government. So fast forward now back to the last couple of years, is all of this activity at the local level, is this good government? Is this a good idea? And I realize it may be legal, it may be illegal, but the question I was really trying to address is, is this a good idea for local governments to get embroiled in these issues when they may or may not have any ability to do anything meaningfully about this 
And the result often is it creates conflict, frustration, and distraction. I could even add other things like it can, incre- it can cause increases in costs to deal with these issues. It can generate candidates who tend to be one or two issue candidates that, that, that are these activist candidates that are trying to come in and address an, a state or national issue. But what it's doing is it's creating bad government. And I, I think that was all of those things were really the motivator to write the article. I, I should say as an aside, in case this doesn't come up, I submitted this article to ICMA in November of 2022. They had this person called the reviewer. I don't know who the reviewer was, but the reviewer sent back some comments. I addressed the comments. And in April, I was told that it was going to be published in the June edition. Then in May, I received some additional comments from the reviewer. And then suddenly they said, I don't want to print it. So I think this topic strikes a core, and I'm not entirely sure what chord it strikes, but I suspect for those who believe local government should be more active in these areas, it probably argues against that. I don't know. But anyway, so this article is not being published in ICMA. Thank you, Matt. And I do want to say Matt has agreed to, to make this article available. Subscribers, to our newsletter for Pioneering Change Community. We'll have more information on this episode, including a copy of Matt's article. And I, we really do hope that this conversation today will stimulate more conversation on this topic. And I'm going to turn this over to Bev now. And Bev, I'd like you to respond to Matt's comments and offer your thoughts in terms of what you feel is relevant. And if you have any other views that that either differ from Matt's or help us to understand it in a different way. Okay. First of all, I just want to say that, and I'm really being this sincerely, after all these years of study, municipal and county managers have just unique responsibilities in the political system. And I don't think anybody can understand their job but them really well. John and I are at a big disadvantage today. The, the, it, what's unique about the manager's job, it's one of those few jobs that's a 24-7, 365 responsibility over people's well-being, sometimes like the death decisions, economic, social, physical well-being, and millions of dollars to deal with in the budget. And it's an expanding and challenging so I can understand the dilemma, and I did read the paper, and I could see stuff coming at you, and it looks like your job's expanding exponentially. In terms of what to say, I think that your profession itself has responded with that new code of ethics that was just passed last month. And so now you've embraced what public administration and political science Values have always looked at effectiveness, efficient equity. And instead of just saying, this is what the manager does, they're saying, this is for all of local government. You don't just worry about helping elected officials do these things. You have to be proactive. And that's a sea change for the city management profession. Whether managers like it or not, I think like 80 or more percent, depending on the value that we're talking about here, have agreed with that new code of ethics. That's your job. So it's very tough. I'm sorry that you had to 
get your first exposure with Berkeley. Berkeley was an outlier. And the kind of thing that they did with the nuclear ban is symbolic. And there's going to be more and more of that kind of thing. You're going to get more and more pressure from your local officials in a partisan polarized world. The, The most recent thing is Berkeley with their ban on gas, natural gas hookups. And the answer to that is we have energy policies, national policies, and what they did was clearly against the national policy. So you go to court and you lose if you're the local government. So that's, it shouldn't take too much of your time. You get your solicitor to tell them, no, you can't do this to the elected official. But everything else coming your way is going to come your way. And the reason for that is even though we have a national constitution that lays out a nationally limited government and basically the 10th Amendment saying the states can do all else and very broadly have what's called the police powers to deal with health, welfare, even the morals of society. The states that create the local governments, and it gets really fuzzy there in terms of who does what. So to me, intergovernmental relations are the part of the political system that makes things workable and defines the relationships among the governments. And where local governments find themselves today is in this messy area of rapidly changing state-local relations on heavily the social issues. And so I guess in, in a big way, I would disagree that local government has become nationalized. I think that local political institutions exist to deal with nationalized politics. It's a whole different approach. So policy is based on law, but politics is what's nationalized. And that is more partisan today than it's ever been. And it's a different kind of partisan. It's not ethnic or racial partisan as much as it's political party partisanship. Everybody divides into red or blue or some middle ground, a little bit of purple. I don't think you could avoid everything coming your way. So you're going to have more and more of uh, land use decisions to try to create sanctuary cities for whatever, uh, like to ban abortion clinics. You're going to have the plastic bags controversy. People don't realize that they think banning books is just about schools, but I think it's the latest survey is 38% of the banning books controversy is about public libraries. So if that hasn't come your way, that'll be coming your way. Decriminalizing marijuana, Second Amendment, gun control, sanctuary cities, et cetera, et cetera. And for every one of those, I think you could find something either in law that the higher level of government forbids the local government from doing it. So that's fairly easy to deal with if you know how to work with your solicitor. And the other things are going to end up in court or you need new ways to 
create communication channels and engage the public and find and uplift the middle ground. And that's what I hope we talk more about today than anything else is some solutions and some new approaches that managers can use for this flood of things coming their way. Thank you, Beb. And and Matt, we're going to go to John, but before we do, you want to, is there any quick comments or follow-up you want to make for Beb? Oh boy, she said a lot. I know. And I, rather than, I don't know if we're going to get to the ICMA code of ethics, that would be an interesting conversation, but that's maybe for another day. But essentially what I think I heard Beb say was a lot of this is occurring and managers are going to need to learn how to adjust and adapt to deal with this new environment. And I would completely disagree with that approach. I realize that may be what everyone ends up doing, but the question is, what should we be doing? Does the manager have any role in, in seeing a situation that is everyone would agree is a bad idea and do nothing? And so my article was an article to fellow managers saying, this is an issue. What should we do about it? And uh, incidentally, I sent this article out to a little more than a dozen managers around the country. And I tried to identify managers, at least best I could, based on their political leanings. And again, it was speculating. I, I probably wasn't entirely. Universally, every single person, and I haven't heard back from all of them yet, every single person wrote back and said, this is a very timely issue. We're seeing this. Most of our fights going on in local government meetings are about issues that ultimately we can do nothing about. So again, I come back to the question, if this is happening, I guess first question is, do we agree this is happening? If it is happening, what should we do? And if the answer is nothing, I got a problem with that. Now, Bev did at the end say that we do need to figure out some things, and I agree with that. We do need to figure out ways of dealing with this. But I think right at the outset, I think we need to acknowledge is this is not a good idea because you're thrusting upon local governments issues for which it cannot deal with in any meaningful way, and it just creates a mess. Can I respond to that? Go ahead. Yeah, again, I think that whether you like it or not, you're the manager, and I think the code of ethics really matters. They went through a rigorous process over a couple of years, and effective, efficiency, equitable for all of government, not elected officials, a proactive role for managers, and dealing with impact of policies, not just policies. So whether you like it or not, that's your arena. That's your job. And I think that, I hope we could get to it. I I came today with a big list, maybe 10 or 12 things that I think managers can do differently than the way they operate, most of them operate now to deal with this situation. But again, I'd say you have no choice. It's your job right now. And I'll let it go from there. So I hope you can. And just one other thing. When I said that we have local political institutions, but nationalized politics now, I think that we probably would all agree that the situation is you're a manager in a world with over a half million elected officials in the United States, but only a handful of federal officials or national officials, actually 537 of them, the House, the Senate, 
the vice president and the president. And yet you have disproportionate news only on national things. You have local elections where only one in five people shows up to vote. You have news coverage of local events not helping you because 2,500 of the news outlets have gone out of business in the last few years. So you don't get the coverage in the paper. You do have local websites, but people don't view them so much. In their life, the average person has not gone to, 80% of them have never gone to a public meeting. You can't avoid that. It's in a hot hot button here. So this is good. I hope to come back and, and flesh out some of that middle ground that you're talking about and some of the ways in which you envision managers responding. I, I want to turn this over to John now to respond again, however you like in terms of what is from your perspective. I thought in particular, if you might discuss any rule law or rule that determines when local governments can or cannot push back as one aspect, but please take the floor and respond to what you are hearing here. Thank you, Nancy. It's very nice to see you again, Bev, and to meet you, Matt. At the risk of incurring Matt's wrath, I will acknowledge that I'm one of the perpetrators of this nationalization. Back during the Vietnam War, those of us who were opposed to the war we're looking for every avenue to affect public opinion. And one of those avenues was try to convince city councils to pass resolutions against the war. And so I was very much for doing that. At the same time, I want to reassure them, I was not the reviewer for your article for ISN. <laughs> if I were, I would have suggested some revisions, but I would have encouraged publication of it. Yeah. And in many respects, the We've had a tremendous nationalization of politics and people are increasingly voting along party lines. And so that has increased polarization. But I think this phenomenon also reflects the fact that people want to have a voice. And in today's world, that's not easy to get. And local government becomes a forum for, for that, kind of, that kind of voice. Let's remember city management system itself is a function of the nationalization of local government. The city management system was pushed by progressives at the turn of the century. It was a national movement. And so they wanted to introduce city management systems. Along with that went nonpartisan elections, moving elections from November to the spring so that they would be separated from national politics. One of the reasons we have low turnout is because the elections are often in the spring, and but that's what the progressives wanted at large elections for city council. Ironically, the city management movement was a function of nationalization in some ways, but there is a constitutional support for local governments engaging in these activities. And that constitutional support begins in 1842. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in a case called Prigg versus Pennsylvania. It struck down a Pennsylvania law that made it a crime of kidnapping to apprehend a fugitive slave and return that to the slave's owner. In doing so, however, Justice Story opined that state and local government officials have no obligation to enforce the fugitive 
slave act or fugitive slave clause. And so as a consequence of that, most of the northern states passed what were called personal liberty laws, which either prohibited state and local officials from helping apprehend fugitive slaves or allowing local state and local officials not to do so if they wished to do so. Most of the northern states passed personal liberty laws. For example, a sheriff in the Boston area imprisoned a fugitive slave in the local jail, holding him for the owner to come and get him. A mob gathered outside of the jail, insisting that since Massachusetts had a personal liberty law, the sheriff should not have imprisoned the fugitive slave. The sheriff being wanting to get reelected, released the slave. This is exactly the same thing as sanctuary cities today, which say they will not cooperate with ICE on illegal immigrants. So if they're holding an illegal immigrant in the county jail and they release that immigrant, they will not inform ICE that person has been released. So it's exactly the same thing as we saw in these personal liberty laws with respect to the Fugitive Slave Act. So what in terms of your article, you had this interesting metaphor about each government staying in its own lane. And really, that's what the court was saying here, that state and local governments would stay in their lane by not enforcing the federal law and leaving that to U.S. Marshals. That was the federal government's job to enforce the law. So the Prig decision is really the basis for today's sanctuary cities, um, the legalization of marijuana, a variety of these activities. Now, at the same time, the court made clear that state and local officials can't interfere with the federal government. And so that's the case with like nuclear free zones. They can't, they cannot enforce those ordinances if, it's a, if it is an ordinance, but they can enforce a sanctuary city ordinance. They can legalize marijuana. So the Prig tradition then was reinforced by the, uh, the Prince case in uh, 1996, in which the, uh, 1997, Prince versus the United States, where the Supreme Court augmented the Prig decision by saying that the federal government cannot commandeer state and local officials to carry out federal law. And that case involved the Brady Handgun Act, in which Congress said state and local officials had to conduct background checks. And the court said, no, that's the federal government's job, just like Prig. It was the federal government's job to apprehend fugitive slaves. It's the federal government's job to do the background check. So in that sense, these activities by state and local governments, particularly, don't constitute nullification. Nullification is an obstruction of the enforcement of federal law. This simply says, pursuant to Prig and Prince, state and local governments do not have an obligation to enforce federal law, so they can do sanctuary cities, they can legalize marijuana, and do things like that. That's there is constitutional support therefore. Along the lines we've been talking about earlier with the nationalization of politics. I, I agree. We're gonna see more of this and not less. And uh, it comes up in a whole variety of ways. Some cities now are caught up in library book controversies. People want certain books not to be in the library or they want them in the library. This is a national movement but it necessarily shows up in local libraries that need public libraries that need to make decisions about what books they're going to buy or not. I guess my feeling is that 
city managers should emphasize as much as you can get away with it, that these are matters that really should be dealt with by the elected officials. City managers need to cope with them, but it's not the city manager's province to be deciding whether you're a sanctuary city or not, or those kinds of things. That that needs to be left up to the elected officials. And I think city managers, to that extent, yeah, you have to deal with the situation, but it seems to me that belongs in the purview of elected officials and not the purview of city managers. Yeah, I think that really gets to the heart of the matter. It's that response question. And I want to let Matt just say a few words here in terms of your, this framework that, that John is putting forth and Bev as well. That question of how does the manager respond when the elect officials decide? What comes to my mind is my conversations with you, Matt, sometimes, for instance, and, and it's a resource question, if, if what they're proposing is going to require additional police services, it's going to fall on the lap of the manager to figure out how that's going to happen. What do you think about that, Matt? Again, there was a whole lot said there. Yeah. I won't be able to address each of the points. I didn't want to address point because it's been Bev and John both brought it up. Interestingly, or maybe not interesting, the book ban, I would not qualify as one of the issues that I'm concerned about. It's definitely an issue of the culture war, but school boards are supposed to talk about and decide on what books are in their library. So in that case, and they have the tools to do it, that's their responsibility. Now, I don't like the fact that it's getting caught up in all these social issues, but what they're actually doing is within their scope of what they should be doing. So the, the book ban, I would say, is not an example of what I'm concerned about. John said something that I think will be the response of a number of people, it's legal. And what I specifically, because I was thinking about this response, in my article, I specifically say effectively nullified. I've never argued that all of these things are, that some of these things are illegal. Some of them are not illegal. If you've got a federal law and you've got limited law enforcement, let's take a state. It's never good to use slavery as your example of a policy because it's, it's almost like using Nazis when you start comparing it with Nazis. But if you've got a state gun law and the state's their intention to enforce this gun law and the state just can't possibly, doesn't possibly have the resources to really effectively enforce this statewide. And you've got some localities that are enforcing it and some localities that are not. You have an effective nullification in certain communities. That, that was the argument I was trying to make. Now, I realized back in 1842, we were divided on a number of things. And there were a number of court cases that came out in ways that may not necessarily come out today. But over the last hundred years or so, we've generally tried to promote intergovernmental cooperation. So if there's one government that says, look, I have this law or policy, can you help me enforce it? We've generally speaking done that. Uh, and I think it's a good practice within reason for governments to help each other in our respective roles when we don't have the ability to do that. There's a lot of ways at the local level. I'll give you just one very minor example of how we do that. State of Pennsylvania has miles and miles of roadway. They can't possibly plow the snow on all those roads. So they go to the local government and say, can you give us a hand? Can you plow these roads? And we say, sure, we'll plow these roads. And we take care of that's intergovernmental cooperation. But when we get to the point, if, if certain communities were say, no, PennDOT, we're not going to plow your roads. And other communities say they did, you're effectively minimizing that state service in that community out of your lack of cooperation. 
Is it legal? Absolutely. We could tell it to no, we don't want to help you out with those roads. Again, the question I keep coming back to is, is this a good idea? Does this promote good government? And I guess ultimately, as a student of history, I'm not an expert in history, but I'm a student of history. We're playing with fire right now with the polarization in our country. And if we don't figure out of ways to try and minimize that, we're going to tear each other apart. I've been in this business for a little under 30 years. And the intensity, the vitriol on both sides of the political aisle, expressing itself increasingly at the local level about issues the local government can do nothing about is concerning. And, and I, I think city managers, maybe in a small way, if we can encourage our elected officials, encourage our profession to try and focus on those core services that promote good government and not get distracted, not promote conflict with these nationals, I think we'd be serving our constituents. We're talking some of the cross purposes here. I think that uh, I fully agree with you on the polarization and that ha that's the main issue that has really affected local governments more than these national issues per se it is the extent to which uh, increasingly state and local officials have to line up with the national political party and voters are sensitive to that issue and that makes life very difficult. But a couple of points at one, whether a local government enforces a state law or not, that's a different constitutional kettle of fish. All right. We were talking about the federal government and the states, state local relations and the rules of state local relations vary from one state to another. And so that's a different, a different issue. But I do think that the nationalization is here. And despite the difficulties that the polarization means that you, we see it in, in my center, we help to hire city managers and in the region. And we're seeing it increasingly on city councils. We have elected officials making these absolutely ridiculous comments and decisions. And we had one case of a council member, the best candidate for city manager, one council member said, she would not vote for this candidate because this candidate 30 years ago was chairman of a political party in college and she was of the opposite political party and refused to vote and it scuttled the search. So I, I fully agree with you and we've experienced the same thing in doing these searches that it's the elected officials often that bring in this polarization and necessarily the public all the time. Yeah. I appreciate that we are we are identifying the problem, but we're not dwelling too much on on the reasons for that problem. I think it's a fact that it's here. I think that everyone in this call is saying that it's here. There's not to be. There's not going to be a change. So if we focus on the promotion of good government. Maybe we can move to, and I want to give Bev an opportunity to respond, and maybe she can introduce some of her ideas and speak to the audience of managers who are listening in and saying, what exactly is it that we, we can do to promote good government? Hey, before I do that, though, I did want to respond to this. Yes. A okay. couple of things. One, I think Matt missed my earlier point on banning books. The American Library Association does studies. 44% of the banning book controversies have involved school districts, but 37% have involved public libraries. So it is a local issue, and it, it might not be in your community 
or maybe even heavy in Pennsylvania, though I've read articles about it occurring in Pennsylvania. So that's one thing. Second, just to make the point, I think John and I both, John gave more specifics. I was more at the top level arguing that you could make a legal argument that it is a local issue for a ton of these things that we're talking about that some might say are national issues and shouldn't be in the local area. And that's because our our system of government, though we are, we, we do have constitutions, we really have shared power in so many areas. And so it's that net, the networks relationship, and especially nowadays because of social issues at the state and local level, that things really matter. And then in terms of basic services, a lot of people say, let's just stay with local government basic services. We don't get into these polarized issues and so on. But I just want to remind that the old adage that all politics is local and that things aren't all that polarized. There's no democratic or Republican way to pave a street, is often said, but it depends on which street you pave and or which part of town you put the street lights in, et cetera, et cetera. So that those areas also could be just polarized as anything else. So I guess what I'm saying, once again, is local government has disagreements. And a lot of people would say that disagreements are what democracy is all about. So the more and we might not like polarization way too much on the two ends, but it creates chances for discussion. And that's what democracy is all about. Enough on that. In terms of polarization, a couple of things. One, the polarization used to just be with residents. And now the managers are filling it with the elected officials. John just gave a group really great example, some examples of that. And I think that's pretty obvious. And that's really being shocked by managers. Secondly, the polarization is more than ever partisan polarization than in the, in, in the past. For example, people today, both Democrats and Republicans, don't want their kids marrying someone from the opposing party. There's a lot of survey data on that. And it didn't used to be that way. But we're not in a civil war either. And there's something fixable here. The Carnegie Foundation did a study, I think, last year of 202 nations. And we're the most polarized in terms of our dialogue. But we're not a civil war. And there are ways to do stuff. So whether we like it or not, and whether you think it's a good government or not, it's at the local level right now to deal with it. So from my perspective, given our topic today, we have to deal with what can managers do. I agree with John saying that this is mostly the elected officials' responsibility. On the other hand, the reality is that those local officials are volunteer. A lot of them just pull in for their town meeting every couple of weeks and the manager's there full time and they expect the manager to handle things. So it lands in your lap no matter what. So here's what I think. I think that managers have a lot of power in terms of the communication channels and creating forums for dialogue in a community. 
and have to, and in this day and age, have to be really proactive. There's no option there. And uh, one thing they can do is just personally do anything they can to get rid of misinformation, never repeat it, just be honest in everything they do. It used to be a controversy when you'd suggest to managers that they have orientation sessions for the elected officials. And because it could be a touchy topic, but nowadays that's more accepted by managers. So I think we need more and better orientation sessions, but I think the content has to change. I think that there are training programs for elected officials everywhere. This state is, has more local associations than anybody. The West has been strong with the local government academy and need to find ways to get people go to those things. And I could talk a lot about that because I brought to the county association ideas and they created their Academy for Excellence back in the 90s, which is really a national model right now. I think that the manager could do a lot to create political balance just by who's appointed to the boards in a town. Because most people that show up at your public meetings are on the fringes. That's the polarization. It's the third side, the middle, that's not. But you can do things to appoint people that are more toward the middle. I think that solicitors are underutilized. Solicitors generally are brought in after the conflict to, to deal with the courts and that kind of stuff. But why can't you get for every issue that's, that's you're concerned of in your towns, let's say using land use, land use laws to ban abortion clinics and the plastic bag controversy. I know your town has just gone through that. Maybe gun control legislation, all that kind of stuff. Why can't you get your solicitor to put together a fact sheet? No, this is a, this is, there's a national law on this. There's a state law. We have to abide by the law. This we can talk about. That kind of stuff. I think that digital literacy has a long way to go. Communities are getting better, but there's way more they can do with their local citizens in terms of that. I've had students through the years do internships to create local government academies. Amy Farkas, you all know, it was a lot of my students in the project she did for a course with Elizabeth Down was the uh, local government academy where a group of citizens would come in and learn about every uh, department. And then a lot of those would go off and be on committees and actually run for government. That helps. I think that uh, technology can lower participation barriers. I think uh, social media can work better. I think online learning is a possibility in terms of the technology to help with local governments. GFOA has a bridging the polarization project that was just unleashed recently, which is phenomenal. And I wish every manager would uh, read the report and participate in those activities. They get into teaching people about the more foundations of ideas. And so you learn about the limits of your own knowledge how you get your ideological differences, how to be open to other people's views, how to reduce animosity at a meeting, and goes on 
and on. And there are lots of groups like that out there. I think that, again, strategic communications, being proactive, strengthening the non-polarized middle, the third side. Another thing is surveys. If there's a rip-roaring fight in your local community, do a survey and you'll capture the middle. You'll, ca- you'll get what the majority's thinking, which will be different than those polarized views, which you can use to be- build bridges. A lot of local government, I don't know if you have an assistant manager, you probably do. A lot of local governments starting in the 80s assign intergovernmental responsibility bridge building to the assistant manager to really stay on top of those kinds of things. And then the big one, and this is really a big one, is to move from debates to dialogue. And that takes some skills. And most managers have not been exposed to that in grad school. More and more managers are becoming assistant managers as undergrads and aren't exposed to that either. And I don't think we have the time to get into that, but instead of having win-lose fights, Jefferson said, I never saw an instance of two disputants that convinced the other by argument. It just doesn't work. Polarization is not winnable, okay? You're not going to end up that way. Instead, you need to create dialogue. And to create dialogue, and I go around the country doing this kind of stuff, you have to develop guidelines that the local officials either vote on or agree to for their own work and for the citizen groups. No public meetings where people just talk at each other and fight. But there are genuine ways, workable strategies to create dialogue where people have respect and civility and where other people are summarizing ideas to come to common agreement and look at what you arrive at. So I guess that's enough for now, but those are the kinds of thoughts that I was thinking of to throw out today. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great, Bev. And all that builds trust. The trust yeah, is yeah. the breakdown polarization. I'm interested in hearing from Matt if any of that rings true to his own thinking. And just from, again, the point of view of the managers who can be very pragmatic types. And I also want to then hear from John if there are some models that, that he has looked at that maybe we could pay attention to or learn from. Matt, do you want to follow up? Sure. I think both John and Bev have mentioned the polarization, and I think that's probably the context in which all of these discussions are are happening. And I've always believed that that two two ideas, you can have ideas that are entirely inconsistent with each other, and ultimately those two ideas cannot coexist. And the classic example in American history is Declaration of Independence and slavery. Okay, those two things can't coexist. They can for a short time, but at some point, one's going to win over the other. And in our case, we fought about it. And fortunately, the good one won out. And I think so in the 1840s, 30s, 40s, 50s, we did not have shared values. There were values that were diametrically opposed to each other. And ultimately, because these things can't coexist, I think there are similarities today forget whether it was John or Beth who said that we're not at a civil war. I'd call us at a cold war. I think we're 
diverging in our values. And these are closely held values, things that we hold dear on both sides. And to a certain extent, some of these are not consistent with each other. And long-term, they won't coexist with each other. One of them is going to win over the other. I don't think this venue is the proper place to start talking about this. But I think suffice to say, we're having this fight and as a nation. And because we don't feel like we can really have a good fight at the federal level, you mentioned this, Nancy, and you can't have a good fight at the federal level. The local citizens is, where can I have this fight? They're gravitating to the local level to have the fight because they can't feel like if, if it's a state issue or an actual issue, and I'm a citizen, I feel passionate about it. How do I go to the state or the federal government to express my passion? You can't, and, or at least most people don't feel like they can. And so what they do is to go to the local level. So I understand why this is happening. Again, I keep coming back to, it's a good idea. One of the things that, that you may not be aware of is actually, this is the third article in a series of articles that I've written that in my mind is really all about the same topic. And it's political neutrality for the manager. So the first article I wrote for ICMA and they published was about being in Carlisle. And I lived in a town where three former managers also lived. And so what was the role of those three former managers? I complimented them in the article and said they did a brilliant job of being a great former manager where they didn't necessarily meddle in things, but they were a great resource. And so that was, and, and I see was all over that article. They loved it. Great. And I got all sorts of great comments. The next one was an article entitled Republican or Democrat Manager. And it was talking about a manager of being Republican or Democrat, which by the way, I think that's the direction we're heading in where there's going to be certain managers. And John alluded to it in that one interview with the, was this person a Republican or Democrat? And then really to me, the logical extension was this next one. This is the one that strikes the chord with a lot of people. And I think it hits home because I think deep down, we all know it's a problem. But if a process is accomplishing our political aim, we're much more willing to overlook process if it's not a great process because it reached our political aim. And I think there's a lot of that going on right now that we're not really calling this what it is. It's a, I think it's a bad idea, but because to a large extent, it's accomplishing a lot. It's allowing us to fight. It's allowing us to, to do these performative things. And in some ways it's affecting public policy. But anyway, let me, let me I don't want to go too far off that. The solicitors. Beth, I couldn't agree with you more about the solicitors, but in Pennsylvania, at least in Southeastern Pennsylvania, I can't comment on the rest of the state, but in Southeastern Pennsylvania, increasingly, and maybe, by the way, maybe this has always been the case. I don't know. But solicitors are chosen to a large extent by their political party. So in communities all over Montgomery County and Bucks County, solicitors are fired and hired based on their political position. So in Upper Morning Township, we had a former solicitor that was a Republican solicitor. And then once our board went over to majority Democrat, they changed solicitors. I still think most solicitors do a great job of balancing that, but I think that's a threat. I think that's something that solicitors have to be very careful about because if they're chosen based on partisanship, maybe their opinions start being based on that as well. But I think most solicitors do a great job of that. And then lastly, I didn't want to just point out this, I mentioned it in the article, which I think is the core, one of the core ideas behind what we're talking about. And that's this idea that is a saying really that came out, I think it was in the 1990s, this 
think globally, act locally. And that caught on and it's so catchy and people love it. It makes you feel like such a responsible citizen, but we're going to try and solve global problems by doing things at the local level. So on its face, it's a silly statement because you're not going to solve these global problems at a local level, but it made it feel really good. It brought out the activists in each of us and we felt like we were doing something. But I think what it's led to is far fewer solutions and far more fights. And I think these fights, especially in certain communities, is literally going to tear communities apart. John, should we accommodate these local activist inclinations? And have you observed in other models of federalism ways in which local governments grapple with this or take those bigger issues and incorporate them? Local governments worldwide are all engaged in these issues and they're increasingly engaged in international issues. Mayors are involved in international activities, state legislators. So I don't know. Yeah, we are talking about a lot here. For one, I would never recommend that a manager come out of a closet and say, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican and act that way. I think that managers have an obligation to be as neutral as possible. And, but understand if you're a manager, if you're a Democrat personally, but you're a manager for a Republican city, you have an obligation as manager to carry out those Republican policies. Or if you're a Republican manager in a Democratic city, vice versa. And so I'm a little less, I agree with everything that Bev said, but I'm just a little less sanguine than Bev. I don't think dialogue is going to work as well. The polarization runs very deep. And I think that's what you're saying, Matt, that this is very deep and it's very difficult to deal with. And so it seems to, that's why I come back, seems to me to the best bet for a city manager is to try to stay out of that conflict as much as possible. Let the elected officials battle it out. And if it has administrative or policy consequences for the manager, then the manager is obligated to, to carry it out. And, but I think managers should to the extent possible, yeah, educate local officials. What we find is local officials themselves, they get elected. They don't really understand local government. They may get elected for ideological reasons, but they don't really understand local government. So trying to educate them, I think is something that is very important. And there, if the manager can bring somebody from the outside, I think that's better than trying to do that from the, from the inside. One way to look at this is that why do we have polarization? My argument is that the polarization is due to the reverse side of the coin, and that's the nationalization of local issues. There's virtually no policy or cultural area these days in which the federal government is not involved. And we are, whenever you nationalize issues, it turns them into really red hot intensity. Take an issue like abortion. Two-thirds of Americans generally support abortion along the lines of Roe v. Wade, and another third, which is a very intense disagreement. So this has territorial dimensions. We have states that are very conservative and want to limit or prohibit abortion. We have other states that are very liberal. And so to the extent these issues get nationalized, they reach this intensity that causes this polarization was one function of the federal system was really to diffuse these issues across the states. 
let the states battle it out. Let local governments battle it out so that we don't polarize nationally. And that's what we have ended up doing. We've nationalized local issues. And I don't, I don't see a solution, frankly. I, you know, I'll admit that up front. I just don't see a solution to it. On another point, though, Matt, I think think globally and act locally. There's a lot that local governments can do about climate change, planting trees, making sure there's a whole bunch of environmental things that local governments can do. And if every we have 30,000 some local governments in the United States, municipal and township governments, so if they're all doing clean water things, these environmental things, they do help the environment. Now, of course, there's limits and the states have to be involved and the federal government as well. But I think there are things that local governments can do. But my feeling is that city managers should try to let the elected officials battle these things out, educate to the extent you can, but understand when you're taking a city management job, what's the politics of that community and can you live with it? And if you can't live with it, don't take the job. But otherwise, I think it's really... So I agree with you. City managers are in a very difficult position, which is why I think they should try to, the extent possible, stay out of those battles and let the elected officials fight it out. Yeah. This conversation is fascinating to me, and I think there are so many directions we could go. One that just popped in my head, and I'm just going to say it here, is what about the manager who now wants to be an activist? We had that in a previous podcast episode that MAP was in. What happens if I have a very strong feeling? So. I'm influencing the direction of the elected body who seems to want to go in that direction. So maybe we're all going in the same place. Is that something that, that really the manager should not, should not be weighing in on so much? I think sometimes restraint is an important skill for a manager to have. And I think in local governments as well, people often ask me, what's the most important skill for a local, locally elected official? And formed this opinion back when I was at NC State, and I won't tell Bev how I did that, but I still believe it's true. And restraint is, the, I think, one of the most important skills for an elected official as well as a manager. Sometimes the answer is just no. Sometimes it's, I'll think about it. Sometimes it's, but we feel like this need that we've got to jump head in, do some of these things that I think it's creating with the best of intentions, I might add. A lot of people, these are all sincere people thinking this is a good idea. And I just disagree. I think so many of these things we're doing is aggravating and really opening scabs and not allowing things to heal. And ultimately we're going to tear each other apart. I think we have a topic for another. Yes, we do. And there's even, I have so much to say here and I'm going to try to keep my mouth shut, but it's for you all to speak and Bev, you're up. Okay, just to touch on a whole bunch of things that everybody said. Back to the solicitors. I'm aware of how solicitors are chosen. I've done three big projects in three states on solicitors. Then I took my data to the head of the Department of Community Affairs before it was DCED in Pennsylvania and tried to talk them into doing something about solicitors, teaching local governments how to evaluate their solicitors. They should be evaluating how to hire them, what some criteria should be. And as far as I got was, uh, we got the solicitor's handbook for the state of Pennsylvania. And now I've been working on trying to get that fact sheet for the whole state. So it has nothing to do with politics or partisan. But if this is the state law, then 
people should know that's the state law before they start fighting about it at the local level. So that's all I was talking about on solicitors. I thought I've been saying that if you're a manager, you're kind of stuck with the uh, current code of ethics. But what I didn't say, and I think what everything Matt has been saying gets into the idea that there's going to be a real danger here with the current revisions to the code of ethics to get managers into politics. Now, when I was at NC State, the average tenure of a city manager nationwide was just 4.2 years because of politics. And then I came back to Pennsylvania and I was running into managers that had 12, 15 years as the manager. And I thought, boy, isn't that nice. And now I'm seeing lots of changes again because the council is coming in and applying politics. And John gave the great example. That's the danger. On the other hand, that is for largely, I think, the reasons that John explained why that happened. The first thing I learned in grad school was he who sets the agenda has power. And if in, the, if in an organization, people run around and become the, on this committee and the president of the organization, they start setting the agenda. And I think that's what's happened. Just to summarize what some of the stuff we've been saying, I started out saying we've got national institutions, but nationalized politics. And policy is heavily based on legal things, and there is shared powers for most policies. And it's the marriage of nationalized politics and polarization explaining where we're at now, where we're at now. Political behavior isn't nationalized. I really liked Matt's point about people don't know where to go. They don't truly really have access to gripe about something, so they go to the local government. I, it's just like taxes. People might be set up at the price of goods, but April 15th is a known day they pay their taxes, so they blame everything in terms of their finances on government and paying taxes. An area where I really take exception just to Matt is on the think globally, act locally, and agree with John. I'll send you an article I wrote a number of years ago. John probably saw it because I think we have something in the same book, but it was called The Internationalization of Federalism, where I used this concept of domestic, which means international and domestic policies are all every level of the government that you can imagine. Because no matter what the policy, the impact of it is probably local. You can go out to a farm in Iowa and talk with farmers and you'll see that they'll have a computer on their tractor tracking international trade data. And everything we do with trade and agriculture impacts their local community. And Everything your local community is doing, Matt, on green infrastructure, stormwater management, most good land use policies, everything is dealing with climate change. Climate change is not just moving to electric cars. So local governments are doing more than most in terms of proactive. So I did research a number of years ago. I just would run around going to local government meetings listening to the language when they talked about all these things. 
these policies that we're talking about and wrote an article on the language of collaboration. And what I found was, and think, you'll have to think about this, in the public meetings, most of the language when people talk was using the language of war, of divorce, or of body parts. Think about it. You'll come up, I came up with dozens and dozens. Very rarely, let's wrap around our arms around the problems, the language of collaboration. You almost never hear it. So all I was trying to say was that managers don't have to be partisan. They don't have to get into those fights. That's exactly what John is saying and what Matt's saying, that this is someone else's issue. The elected officials, that's why we have elections. But the managers can do strategic things proactively to change the conversation and to lower the temperature. Nancy, can I just say a few things to clarify? First of all, Bev, I wish I could reach through the screen and hug you. I agree <laughs> with you. I agree with what you just said there at the end. I think that summarizes really the overarching thing is I think managers really can play a role. Maybe it's small, but can play a role in cooling the temperature and hopefully trying to lower angst in our communities. And there was another issue I didn't include in my article, but Nancy and I talked about it recently, which illustrates again this point is the recent Phoenix example, which I found fascinating. So the city of Phoenix is shipping firearms to Ukraine. Now, the way they're, they're sending it to Ukrainian law enforcement, but just think of that concept. So you have a city that is interacting with a foreign country and sending them firearms. Now, of course, it's gotten very political. The state of Arizona, particularly, I think Phoenix is on the left and at least the state legislation on the right are coming out saying you can't do that. And apparently, I guess there is some state law that, that would prohibit. But regardless of whether it's legal or not, is that a good idea? Because let's say that Scottsdale says, we're going to send arms to Russia, you know, or whatever kind of combination. This goes back to the founding of the country where that was one of the early things that we decided the federal government was going to be in charge of is the foreign relations and the treaties and the interactions, diplomacy was going to occur at the federal level. But you've got local governments with the best of intentions, I would guess, that are inserting themselves into, to, they're in, in the middle of a war. It's, to me, I think that was one of the most brazen examples of the topic we're talking about. And everyone can justify it, I'm sure, on different levels, but that, that just seems to illustrate an extreme example of what I'm talking about, that Phoenix is inserting themselves into the middle of a war. And Tiance, the I'm residents all... of Phoenix that, that are eligible to vote should either kick the rascals out or keep them in. It doesn't matter what I think. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I'm all for it, Matt. All the states have sent aid to Ukraine. The federal government has not objected to that. There are some state, federal laws that govern some of these areas, so states need to stay in terms of what they export, but, and lots of local government, and Pennsylvania has sent aid to Ukraine as well, and if a local government wants to send aid to Russia, that's the democratic process, and I'm sure the local officials who would do that would have to take the heat of doing that. John, would you have a problem? I'm upset about it. Would you have a problem with Phoenix and Senate? By the way. I'm totally supportive of Ukraine. This is not that I thought. But would you feel the same way if they were sending firearms to Russia? 
my position is that's the democratic process. And if the yeah. elected officials approve that and they're willing to take the political heat for that's their business. But I'm not aware of any locality or state that has sent aid to, to, to Russia. But you're right. It gets into the political process because people who support Trump and conservatives in the Republican Party want to cut back on the aid to Ukraine. And so they would be very much opposed to these policies because they, and Trump has said he wants to end the war if he gets elected. It is a domestic political issue. But in this case, would it, what would be the problem with Phoenix, city of Phoenix contacting the State Department and just saying, look, we'd like to do this. Can we send these to you guys? And then you distribute them as you see fit. I guess they could do that if they want, but that's very inefficient as opposed to shipping them directly. It just seems to me that would be, then the nation is speaking with one voice. Our foreign policy is one voice, as opposed to, imagine if you had 200 municipalities around the country that had all these inner, all these separate relationships with foreign countries all over the place. To me, that, that gets unworkable. And John would like 200 municipalities. It's a democratic uh, process. You're right. That what does the city administrator, what was, that's our topic. What was his or her role? I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. What did the city administrator for Phoenix do? You know, well, I've only read a couple articles, but I think he was, the administrator was, they were trying to decide whether it really was legal. Whether they could yeah, do well, that's the job. Right, exactly. I'm not faulting the administrator in this case, because I don't know the background. I guess I'm just using that as an example of, I think most people, and maybe I'm the, maybe I'm the rare one, but I would argue that most Americans, and you said, is this a good idea? I would think that, that you have municipalities all over the country in, with these special relationships with foreign countries, sending them whatever it might be. Is that a good idea? And I think most people say, ah, that's probably not a good idea. We and probably see, I'd speak. say that if there, if someone was a city administrator or the town council in town and were considering something like that and were hesitant, maybe they ought to do a survey and see how the public thinks about it before they go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't guess. I will say, John, to, to your point, again, back to this town of Sykesville, we had a mayor in the 80s. It was before I got there that was an activist mayor, and he's the one that did the nuclear free zone. But he also tried to do a sister city relationship with a Russian city. And I remember this in the 1980s. The State Department came out and said, you can't do that. And I think the State Department, in my opinion, acted appropriately that do we really want municipalities being a little bit adventuresome, going all around the world, having and the sister cities I don't have a problem with, but entering into these special relationships, whether it's with arms, whether it's economic deals. Do we really, do we think that's a good idea? I would argue that it's not. Generally speaking, I, would, I guess I would disagree, Matt. I think it's, a, it's part of the democratic and entrepreneurial process of local government. And it was really the federal government that first urged local governments to get involved in international affairs during the 1950s under Eisenhower. And that the sister cities programs, various exchange programs and the State Department regularly calls on local officials to go do, I, I did a lot of work on democratization in Eastern Europe and Russia after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And the State Department recruited city managers, budgeteers, water and sewer people, all to help these local governments 
perform these kinds of services. So the State Department calls very heavily on local officials and particularly to go help in these kinds of these kinds of matters because they have expertise. But that was done through the State Department. Yeah. But my point is that the federal government has encouraged state and local governments to do this and they've gone off on their own to do things in addition to that as well. And I think that could be expected. Again, they're constrained by federal law. The same way, go back to Prig versus Pennsylvania, 1842. State and local governments cannot interfere with federal activities. They can't violate federal law. So they can either cooperate with the federal government or they can go off on their own in a variety of different ways. You all, we're going to bring this to a close. I know we could keep going and we will have some more conversations. I think there are some excellent conversations. And for me, I just think this lens today, I knew this would be a very rich conversation, but wow, you all just delivered just great speakers and so much to bring forward. And for those who are really thinking through how to be a good manager, if you will, thank goodness that we have people like Matt who are in that position. He's asking the exact kind of questions that managers need to be asking. And I think that what happened today in providing the context from Bev being very much a pracademic and John having his models, which are, are really firmly rooted in, in, in historical examples and international view, it's just bringing so much to, to the table to think about. So I do want to thank you all so much for being here. And I hope that we do have a chance to, to continue what I think is just a great conversation. It will be so helpful to so, so many managers. So, The only thing I'd like to say is thank you so much, John and Bev. They're very insightful comments, made me think about a lot of things. So I really appreciate your insights and a lot of smart comments that, that I appreciate that helped me think through these issues. Yeah. Thank you for the compliment. Thank you, Nancy, for hosting uh, this. I'm glad to meet you, Matt, if not in person, at least to see you. And good to see you again, Bev. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Like I said at the beginning, you've got one of the toughest jobs in the world, Matt. It's very tough. I know, I don't know how John feels, but as an academic, it was increasingly difficult to try to be totally neutral. I used to pride myself on students after an election asking me who I voted for. They honestly didn't know. And I'm not in the classroom now so much, so I'm glad I'm not, because it would be hard not to be talking. Hey, Nancy, another great topic that you might want to do with John and Bev and maybe another manager is do MPA programs adequately prepare managers for the profession? And I, that's already been decided. The accrediting organization has a whole separate section on urban local government because we were not happy with the standards used and what was taught in the curriculum. However, polarization and nationalization now mean we have to expand the curriculum for local officials. Yeah. And they're doing that. They're on it. Jim Samara from I, was he there when you were in NC State? Yeah, yeah. He took my old job, okay. and he's one of the leaders of that. Yeah. I think this was as good as any classroom experience right here. So Matt and I benefited from your company today. And thank you all so much for showing up today and just being really ready for this conversation. It's been enlightening. So 
We'll see you Thank next you. time. I'll Thank follow you. up. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye.